No, that's right. I'm, I only get up early tomorrow going fly fishing, but that's no stress. <laughs> Don't get me started. Hey guys, welcome to the Hunting Camp Down Under podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Cuyuga Broadheads. As temps warm up around Australia and hunting tends to slow down for most of us, it's a great time to test new gear, fine tune our setups for our next hunt, whether it be six weeks time or six months for the fallow and red deer rut in 2019. Now would be a great time to take advantage of the 10% discount at CuyugaBroadheads.com. Choose your polar cuts in either 125, 150 or 175 grains and simply use the HCDU10 code on checkout and change the outcome of your next hunt. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I hope everyone uh, is doing fantastic and uh, has been awaiting this next episode to come out. I've uh, got to say thank you to all the feedback coming through still. Um, I'm glad it's uh, it's getting more and more of a reach and, and f- people still following the podcast and are still finding uh, great value in them as well. So we're starting to get a, a good range of guests on and uh, today is, is no different. Uh, Tom Jones, he, uh, he reached out to me there couple of months ago and uh, asked if he wanted to have a mad keyword on the show and uh, I obliged and uh, a couple of later, days later we, uh, we recorded this podcast uh, just before I headed off to Alaska. Um, Tom really shed some light on the hunting in New Zealand. Um, don't let his youth fool you. He's uh, he's done plenty already. You know, he's been over to, to British Columbia guiding, guiding in Colorado for elk, um, stone sheep up in British Columbia and He's a full-time guide in New Zealand, and uh, he definitely knows way he's ran, his way around the mountains, I should say, uh, chasing sort of tar and shmoy and and uh, and also you know red stags. And it was only just after this podcast we laid this one out, and uh, a couple of days later I uh, I gave him a call and we locked in a, a red a red stag hunt for uh, for 2020 in the raw for a mile man and his best mate and and I'll be in tow. So. Um, I just I couldn't help myself, and my old man's you know he hasn't shot a red deer yet. And after talking with Tom, I I thought it was the best opportunity that we can uh, get over there and, and hopefully score data on Big Red, and he'll have his best mate by his side uh, with a bow in hand as well. So really looking forward to that. Those eighteen months eighteen months can't go quick enough. So it uh, be plenty of anticipation for that one. So um, how good is Instagram at the moment uh, for anyone that follows overseas hunters? Watching these mule deer and elk come through uh, just gets me keener than ever to get back over there next year. Got some big plans next year. Unfortunately, I'm obviously not chasing elk this year, but um, huge congrats to, to Harrison Tidings. Uh, I know him and his old man Pat have just returned and Harrison took a, a nice mule deer in the high country of Colorado. Um, great effort with the bow. First time over there chasing them and some of the pictures coming through. You know, just spectacular scenery and, and no wonder Colorado's very high on most people's hit list. Um, to Ben McCulloch, Brad Murphy, Nick Peterson, uh, good buddies of mine. They are literally just about to fly out and uh, hitting up Bozeman, uh, Montana, chasing elk over there. Best of luck, guys. Um, I'm, I really wish I was with you, but uh, you're in for an epic trip there and, and can't wait to see the see the pictures come through and hear the stories of, of your hunt over there. So yeah, they'll be over there for a couple of weeks and uh, I know they're getting really excited and it's just about fly out on Saturday, so good luck, boys. Safe, safe travels. Um, anyway, guys, all the best to everyone out there that uh, is heading abroad. I know some other guys heading to the States and a few guys heading to New Zealand. Uh, best of luck out there. Stay safe, and uh, I hope you enjoy this this episode with Tom Jones. 
All right, Tom. Welcome to the podcast, mate. I'm glad to uh, first Kiwi to the podcast. Welcome, mate. Uh, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, and hopefully we can spin a few yarns and teach a few things to the boys and uh, over in Oz. No, I think uh, I think we'll we'll nail that one on the head. I think so, mate. As always, mate. I uh, like to start with a, a bit of bit of background on everybody, and um, obviously. You know, get a bit of an idea of you know who you are and, and what you're about, how you how you sort of got started, and um, you know a bit of the bit of the life story of Tom Jones, mate. Take it away. Absolutely. Well, uh, hunting was sort of it was more of a, a family thing. My old man he shot out the helicopters for years, um, so I was born into it. You know, like he always took us hunting and we we're out bush every weekend and stuff and. He, he, him and his mates were the ones that made the net gun back in the day for the um, for the live capture in New okay. Zealand. So, yeah, gotcha. That's cool. So it all stemmed, yeah, it all sort of stemmed, stemmed from that. Um, and then growing up, you know, like you always get into it, and especially the bow hunting. I was, you know, picking up sticks and making arrows and stuff since I was five years old. And um, it just takes it from there, from bunnies and stuff gets bigger, and you get another bow and I think my first decent bow was a like a Hoyt Tenacity, I think it was called. It was like yep. a 98 Hoyt, old school as. And I was proud <laughs> of punch, you know, like just yeah. throwing arrows here, there and everywhere. So it was good. Um, and then what I what I personally done is I, I, I went through school pretty easy and um, had a mind on me a bit. So I passed all that relatively quick and then I shot over and um, up to the North Island and done a hunting course yeah, right. which was more more pest control based but then got qualifications so I came out of that and went straight into pest control yeah um, from about you know like that 15 16 sort of thing um, and then done that for about a year and realized you know you're killing like possums and stuff and just doing TB control and then um, I really wanted to always get into the guiding because I, I watched all the videos, you know, Jim Shockey and stuff when I was younger, sure. his very first stuff. And like, so eventually the way the guiding came about was I hassled and I hassled. I sent emails to every single outfitter in New Zealand. I hassled, you know, like just somebody take me on and it was just come down to persistence. And eventually, you know, somebody stuck up their hand and said, yeah, like come, I'll teach you the ropes. And it was good, you know, like, so I went and worked for Don Patterson, which is, he started the Nuka Point Lodge um, and he's up the Rakaia River and he he runs a great outfit, but it was mostly Americans um, uh-huh. and sort of the high fence hunting and stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't really know if this is me, you yeah. know, like you can only, you can only say so many times this is the biggest stag you've ever shot, you know, sure. yeah. um, and it just grew like the passion because I was always good with people you know like I could get along with everybody um always had a passion to know where somebody's background come from and what are they doing here and how they got here and stuff so I always liked learning from the older generation so I just took that with me and then worked for another outfitter doing the same sort of thing and then um eventually about I don't think it was almost about 2010 that I went out on my own and just to specialize in the free range stuff yep um and that was sort of like that was where my heart was set that's what i really enjoyed and that was what i was passionate about so <laughs> yeah about 2010 i started that and um and it was known then as main divide outfitters and we've we've changed it to um tom jones trophy hunting 
um, just because everybody that comes over, you know, knows me as Tom Jones and everybody messages me through Facebook for a hunt as Tom Jones. Yeah, and they didn't that. even know <laughs> what my business name was. But, um, and yeah, so we've done that and we just got huge, really, really fast. Um, like I just had a lot of guys, like the first year I ever started, I was fully booked. Like I had so many hunts and I had them coming out of my ears. Um, and it was just a really good response from the Australian public. Um, and we done, you know, and that was, you know, going back seven or eight years ago. And then every year we've just been booked out consistently and mostly doing rifle hunters. And we do a heap of bow hunters too. And really what guys want. And we just do like stags and tar and chamois and most of the stuff free range, um, even a couple of fellow bucks that guys want. And um, just get guys out, get them learning about New Zealand. Um, like even if a guy comes and he comes with me and I teach him what the animals do, their behaviour and stuff like that, and they go home and they have a good trip, good trophies, and they're safe. Yeah. And then if they want, to, even if they want to come back, you know, I'm always more than happy to help them because if you, te- it's all about teaching people, you know, like sure. in the guiding you're just passing on knowledge and that's what they're there for. And so it's good to see guys come back and do their own thing, which a lot of guys don't like, but I personally believe, you know, everybody grows and that's how it should work, you know? Definitely. So break us down. Um, one, sort of your location to sort of North and South Island, um, for those that didn't do real well at geography, sort of, you know, run us through uh, where you're located, what, what sort of the hunting availability in the North Island um, anyone that's obviously, you know, pretty keen on the tar and that obviously knows the South Island with Fjord land and, you know, the Landsborough and things like that. But just sort of start at the top, run down through um, a bit of the species on each island, uh, where you mainly concentrate on and, and uh, you know, sort of where your home ground's been. Absolutely. So, like, we're sort of based out of Christchurch, which is a central uh, South Island. It's like the main centre in the South Island. Yeah. Um, and then we, we're just out of Christchurch in a small place called Rangura, and we're based from there. So, you know, we've got red stags on our doorstep, basically, and then it's just a couple-hour drive, and, and we're into the tar. So I think we're pretty well situated. But a, a few different animals you've got, like, you know, people talk about the South Pacific 15, but especially for just New Zealand critters. So in the North Island, we have Sika, um, we have Rusa and Samba, and they're all in the North Island. Um, there is Reds and Fallow there also. Um, and that's like in the Kaimanuas and stuff where people chase Sika and you would have seen Rob Fickling go there and a few different other guys chase, chase Big Sika. And it's quite a hard hunt. Um, and then you start coming down a bit further south and we have... In the South Island, we got the tar and chamois, which were originally like released early 1900s, about 1905, I believe. Um, and then, so they they really took off. Um, I think chamois in New Zealand is the only place outside their native environment that they've actually thrived, and yeah. you're able to hunt them in a, a free range environment. Okay. Um, so th- that's a really good point because they just breeding and breeding everything's just pushing out more and more so we're getting more and more numbers um of animals in different areas which is great and then you got go on to the white tail which there's two different subspecies like two different areas, so to say you can hunt white tail one's a dart and rees and that's just out of queenstown um and that's the dart and rees valley and a lot of people go there and then the other half is the Stewart island where 
Um, it's quite dense bush. It's like rainforests. Like my father went down there this year, and he um, they got there the first day, and it started raining. And the only day that it didn't rain was on the way out. So that was <laughs> thirteen days later. So they drank an awful lot of beer and ate an awful large amount of food. Sounds like and a terrible ate. trip. <laughs> yeah. He came back and he said, you know what, Tom? I fucking hate Stuart Island. I'm never going to. And, this is, and I just listened to him because this is a bloke like that's seen it all, you know. And he, yeah. like, if he thought it was bad, like, it must have been horrid, you know. Laugh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. At least he's honest so, about it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, my old man's honest as shit. But, um, and then, obviously, we got uh, the world-renowned uh, Wapiti, which... They are pretty much, they are elk. So they're first brought over here by Theodore Roosevelt. I believe they were Roosevelt elk when they were first released here. Okay. Um, God bless his soul that he dropped them off and yeah. gave us this whole <laughs> hunting opportunity. Definitely. Um, and the Fiordland Wapiti Foundation do a great job. They colour out the extra reds and um, they've just been doing, over the past 10 years, you know, they've really been working on trophy management and it's heavy heavily balloted so you know you can't go in there just any time of year um the raw is all balloted and they try to avoid people going in before and just shooting like soft velvet yeah. stags yeah. Yeah. which is nobody likes that you know but a, a couple of guys get in there and they shoot some really nice velvet stags that are hard and and they do a good job too and then obviously the ballot you gotta you, you put in and um most of the time you don't draw but um when you do you know you get to play off the sand flies and the, the rain and that's real man's country there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's good. And then that's basically like a summary of, of our trophy animals in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, I think I covered just about everything. Like pigs are just about everywhere. Yeah. Um, and what, what's the main area for tar? Um, I mean, obviously New Zealand, New Zealand and tar kind of just go together, but uh, what, what, do you find is the seems to be the honey hole or or the most chased area for those? So it's it's really the east coast and west coast are both very very productive. And we're talking South Island too, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, South Island. Yeah. So the first first release in the Mount Cook area. So you can find them around sort of there on the east coast. Um, on the west coast, um, it rains about two hundred days of the year. Um, and they live in scrub and stuff like that. And on average, the body size of a bull on the west coast compared to the east is about 25% bigger. Wow. So a big bull may go 250 pound on the east coast, but he can he can go 310, you know, 320 on the west. And just, I don't know why, but they are just a bigger animal. Um and their, their horns are a lot darker because they're rubbing. There's a lot more brooming. There's a lot more okay. one horn. Yeah. So, um, and then you can hunt them in a, in a balloted area too, um, and that's real man's country again. Which um, one, where, what's that known as? Uh, it's just the West Coast tar ballot. Okay, yep. Um, and then you can hunt that, yeah, basically during the ballot, it goes through to, I think it starts in May and or maybe mid-April and goes through to June, I believe. Um, and that's, that's only on the West Coast. And then a lot of the open areas on the East Coast, so we've got a lot of big drainages. So we've got big drainages called like the Rangatata River. So that's renowned for 
tar hunting in New Zealand, which is just behind Geraldine there. Okay. Um, and then you've got a big area like the Godley River that's up the head of Lake Tekapo and the Jolly and d- just different areas around that Mount Cook. Um, but they don't seem to come too far north. They don't come north of the Rangitata River and then they don't come south pretty much below um, Lake Hawea, so Ahariri area. Um, if, if, if somebody was to look it up, um, to head down into like the Hunter River, the head of Lake Hawea, that's pretty much where they stop. So they're in quite a big area and quite spread out, but um, they, are, they are moving. There's quite a few heading north, like we've seen them in areas that we've never seen them before last year, um, and, and quite a lot. Like we've seen a hundred in one area that up until two years ago there was never a tar there. Do you think that's so, hunting, do you think that's hunting pressure, or do you think they're just you know doing it for their own reasons? I believe it's probably their own reasons. Um, like when it comes down to um, like there's so many tar now um, that Department of Conservation now we've changed government they've got this whole new budget so they're culling them out. Yeah. Um, and this is just what I personally believe with the culling is they've been leaving the bulls, so we're still seeing good good numbers of bulls. Mm-hmm. Um, never like astronomical numbers. Like you're only going to see, you know, the, probably the most bulls I've seen in one trip is maybe 150. Okay. But I've seen like maybe a thousand nannies. So they're mm-hmm. all competing for this feed. They're all getting pushed further and further into areas that they haven't been before. Um, and now they've just started culling them. They say the population at the moment is around that 30,000, okay. which is, I'd say that's a pretty reasonable estimate, maybe even more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they want them down to 10, <coughs> excuse me, they want them down to 10,000. So... <coughs> The bulls we have now are going to be really good and have some good condition in the next few winters because there's yeah. not as many in the ground. But when we get five years down the track, when they've killed all the nannies and and maybe even all the juveniles that don't they can't tell if it's a bull or a nanny, then that's when we may run into a shorter numbers of bulls. But the bulls that are there have a good chance of being like really really exceptional trophies because they've got more feed. They've got uh, better condition uh, just from eating more grass because yeah. some of the places you go, there is absolutely nothing. Like yeah. it is eaten out to a, a raw. Um, so that's only one good side of culling, you know. Like everybody, even America, they all base like good trophy management off having a certain amount of nannies per bull ratio. Right. Um, same with the deer. So it, I think it ultimately it may be good for the population, may be good for the uh, hunting industry and stuff like that. We're getting bigger bulls coming through every year. Like last year, we shot just an absolute horse of a bull. And you'd, Greg Coyne at Broad Sound Safaris, um, he came over and he's like, I really want to shoot a good tar for my bow. So I went to a spot there and it was in spring. Um, and he shot um, a 14-inch bull and it was 45 Douglas score. So it was the biggest bull free range to be shot in New Zealand um, by any other yeah. person, you know. It's pretty much, it, it didn't go as a world record because Safari Club International, um, they take on high fence stuff. So we, Douglas scoring yeah. system for New Zealand Bow Hunters Society, which he wasn't part of, um, it, it was number one. Wow. So 
we done a really good job of that. Um, a great ball and a great hunt. Um, and he, and he was over the moon. So we're just getting more and more big trophies just as the time goes by. You know, they're getting cunnier, cunninger, they're getting smarter. Um, a few more guys are hunting them. A lot a lot more guys are getting back into the back stuff um, where nobody's really been before and pushing it, pushing the limits of where, where they can be and where they can go. So it's 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 good all round for the industry. So obviously, you know, with the bow, it's probably a little bit harder, but, you know, with the rifle. But how many guys come over and say, look, I want to shoot in a particular inch bull or you know, I want to shoot it? Like if it was me, I'd be just like, I'd be happy with the bull's half. But... Yeah. How, how many guys, just as a percentage, you know, how many guys is like, this is what I want to shoot? Um, with the tar and chamois, it's it's actually not much. Like, yeah, cool. Like, I try to draw the, draw the line at, like, I want to shoot at least five and a half to six years old and 12 yeah, so inches. You're, you're still going on an age class. Yeah, so I'm, and, but it can be hard because a six year old bull, if he's broomed off and he's had a hard life, he may only go you know, like 11 inches. Sure. But you get this beautiful big mane. So that's really when it comes down, you have to talk to the client and try to find, does he want to shoot this bull or does he want something bigger? Yeah. And usually if if he wants to shoot it, because that's the bull tar standing in front of him, he's big, he's beautiful. (laughs) Um, They're all for it. Um, But that's pretty much as the standard is 12 inches. That's a good, respectable bull for us to pull out in a five-day stretch. Um, it's different for when it comes to the stags guys like they know like there's a lot more questions so guys are like yeah i want to shoot a big stag i want it to be you know at least 10 points 40 inches long yada yada mm-hmm. where a guy hunting the tar they they don't know much so yeah, they're, they're learning right. rather than like i get asked 20 questions when we do a stag hunt but i may get asked two questions when we do it, book a tar hunt for yeah. example gotcha um because they, and then it's trying to explain what they're in for, you know, like we're going to be in the mountains, we may not have reception, you know, you may have to put down your phone, you know. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Sel- no selfies, you know. <laughs> Bring a selfie stick or rip it around your head. Oh, that's hilarious. So when you, obviously, you know, you're, you're dealing with so many different people and, and obviously, you know, tar and, and just tough hunting conditions sort of go hand in hand, but... I mean, is there an easier tar hunt, or is it just all difficult? Like, is there a is there a place where maybe someone's listening to this podcast and going, "Geez, I'm, I'm past the prime of these, you know, these young fellows ripping around the hills." But you know, is there is there an option still staying, you know, true to the you know to the true free range? Is there an option there for for someone that maybe not you know a hundred percent or ninety five percent in a in a physical condition? Absolutely, like a rut hunt is is what we call from pretty much mid-April through to July. Like, uh-huh. we'll cut it off at July because it gets too cold. Um, and that's quite an extreme hunt. The bulls are up higher. They're rutting. You know, you're dealing with snow, ice, wind, rain. Where, Like, we also do another type of hunts where we do spring hunts. Um, the tar aren't black and maned up, but they've got a big blonde mane, okay. so to speak. Um, and so what happens is, in spring, is the tar, they feed um, up high altitudes all winter and then when basically when the new spring growth comes it starts at the bottom of the valley and then it's like and it works it makes its way up so all the tar that are all up high they bail off the top of the mountains and like a lot of the time there's 
mobs of bulls. So I'm talking in spring, they all mob up after the rut. You'll see up to, I've seen like a hundred bulls in one mob, um, just walking across a face. And that there's like just above a river flat, you know? So yeah. if, if a guy was worried, you know, like we're, we've basically done it all. Like I got a, you know, nine year old child to, to shoot a bull tar, like a, a 12 inch bull tar. And I've had like 75 year old men shoot bull tar too. And that's like not a backbreaking hunt. Um, and that was, you know, free range. Um, and then, we have private land too for guys that just, if we may have a disability, sometimes you can just get that little bit closer. Um, depending on what time of year, like if we want to do a rut bow hunt and a guy wants to get up there and experience the rut, then we'll do a private land one. Okay. Um, just so we've got a higher percentage. Um, yeah. So just get, just before we go any further on that, a private land is not still, it's not meaning high fence. It's just that it's private ground leading up to higher country. Is that sort of how that works? Yeah, correct. Yeah, we don't do any, um, like personally, I don't do any um, like high fence tar hunts. Yep. Um, like just so I, nobody asks, like if we say, oh, I want to do a bull tar, you know, and it's like, oh, well, we don't really do them high fence. So they sort of know where we stand on that because we've got such good tar hunting areas that are just even private land, but still free range that gotcha. they don't need to shoot one high fence, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like if we have a guy that's got a disability or, or something like that, then we may rethink that. But um, like we just manage that as it comes. Yeah. Um, and then, so yeah, in spring we got that. Um, and with the um, we lost it. With the um, so yeah, with the spring hunts we got that, and then um, with the chamois too, they come down quite low in spring, and they're quite an easy hunt to make. Yeah, nice. So with um, maybe slightly moving forward, you know, into the guiding side of things, I mean, you've done this for a little while now. I know we were talking a little bit earlier before, but what sort of separates, I guess, you know, one yourself from everybody else, you know, concentrating on the tar, because that's sort of no easy feat as a guy, but, you know, what, what sort of separates a good guy, you know, from, from the average guy? And, you know, how much more is it being a guy than, you know, just being a good hunter. Yeah. So it's really, um, being a good hunter definitely helps as being a guide, but the, the only thing that's really different with a guide is um, your own personal hunting has to take a step back. Um, okay. If you want to become a full-time guide, um, your own hunting is going to suffer. You're not going to get as much out of it. Um, you're not going to be able to just have a break and get away with the boys and stuff like that. You know, it's not... It is a job. Um, for me, it is my whole life. That's what I've been doing for so long. Um, I do still enjoy getting out and shooting a big stag or a tar or anything. Um, and I enjoy that when I can get away from myself. But because I'm constantly finding and scouting new areas and stuff like that, it sort of takes away from your own hunt. Yeah. Um, awesome. and, and just trying to look after the guys. Um, like you've got to for personally like i do all the cooking the cleaning um like the best i can like in a tent camp you know they're back and they're buggered and they're wet and they're cold you know and they jump in their sleeping bag um and you want to jump in your sleeping bag too because you've had a huge day but the first thing you got to do is put on the billy and make sure they have a hot cuppa and and have dinner pretty much done before they fall asleep you know mm, yeah. and then 
from that, you know, maybe 11 o'clock at night by the time you've tidied up for the next day and got everything sorted and, like, and then have everything ready. So you're up first thing in the morning too, um, making cuppers and stuff for guys. So they are there for their holiday, um, so to speak. Um, what do, do ref, do, oh, how do I say, what is different from a guide to a, a good hunter is, is basically just being able to plan the hunt accordingly. You've got to be extremely organised. Um, the skinning's got to be immaculate. Uh, people skills has just got to be like through the roof. Um, and then a lot of good hunters become guides just because they have a passion for hunting, yeah, but sure. a terrible, but a terrible with people. Like I know a few guides there, you know, like you can, can't get a decent conversation out <laughs> of them. <laughs> and you're like, yes, I've been on guided hunts before and you sort of sit there and you're like, I don't know where I stand, you yeah, know, like, I gotcha. am I upsetting this guy or is he, is this the way he is? Yeah. And after, and sometimes like after the fifth day, you just realize that oh, he's just a prick, you know, that's, that's how he's going to be. You know, he's just, <laughs> he's just quiet. He's just doesn't want to talk about hunting and drinking and fishing and who you shared last week or whatnot. You know, it's like, he's just keeps to himself. So it needs to be an experience for them. Um, yeah. And what I, and definitely what I found is, as a hunting guide, you've need to already made all the mistakes. Yeah, go ahead. So you've you've needed to get that truck stuck. You've needed to burn food. You needed to do absolutely everything that could go wrong to know that it's not going to happen again. Yeah. So you need to have the best gear available. So, you know, like if you get yourself into a position, you need to get everybody out safely. Um like especially weather-wise in New Zealand, it can be like extremely dangerous. Uh, even when the weather says it's great, you know, like mm. we've had times where like we've just ended up up shit creek and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. So it comes down to that, like, and it comes with experience too. Like personally, because I run my own outfit and and look after my own clients a lot of the time, um, it's it's about having good, good areas, you know, like if you wanted to go out as your, as your own and you haven't had any guiding experience, but you've had like, you've got a really good area that you can hunt and private land or wherever. And, and you think you want to get into it. Well, take your mates up there, you know, like shoot a few animals, um, get their friends to come and then ask, just ask them, what could I do better? What could I change? You know, what do you think about this and that? Um, it's really just to make it the best experience you can. Um, and what the, the, the first thing I could say for like a, somebody that is a passionate hunter and wants to come through as a guide is it's probably best to go with an outfit that, um, that wants to take them on and learn. Um, like I've got it in Colorado and pretty much all around the world. And it comes down to um, like you don't know each area, so you have to learn. So everything's a learning experience. Sure. Um, somebody there who's higher than you that's going to teach you and then recommend you as a guide to say if you wanted to guide for somebody else is is really what you're going to achieve out of it. So if you can hassle different guides, you know, I really need a chance, I really want to do this, this is my passion, you know, you basically need to prove yourself even before, you know, you are a guide, So which is quite, quite hard because it's quite a hard industry to get into. Yeah, yeah. It is seem it seems to be very tight knit. I mean, like how how do you find it? Like I find it fascinating. I, I'm very fascinated in mindset. Um, 
and I mean, I, I was talking to, you know, a few boys that have, you know, chased tar sort of, you know, annually or biannually or whatever they do. Um, you know, mindset, you know, in that physical country, I mean, it's one for you guys to have to walk around it on your own, but how do you go about keeping someone positive when you know it's absolutely brutally tough and keeping them in the game when it's just simply miserable? Um, I think it just comes with it, you know. It's like, oh, it's just, just that little ridge, yeah, we'll just make it to that ridge. You know, you get over the ridge and you know you've got another K to walk uphill. <laughs> you, you, you mongrels. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't help. Like, I'll sit there for dart, hanging out of my mouth, drinking a Red Bull, walking up a hill backwards, and they're like 300 metres behind dying, you know? Yeah. And you just got to, you know, if guys are really struggling, I've had different times. Like, I had a guy this year's, we got stuck in the tent for 36 hours, and oh. it snowed two and a half foot. Wow. Um, and I had another guide with me, and it's he brought the guys over to hunt with us, and... Um, we're sitting in the tent laughing and watching videos and drinking Canadian clubs and just having a good old hoot. And the guys in the tent next to us, we had no idea that he was like pretty much wanted to say goodbye to his kids, you know, like he oh, thought wow. he was going to die and he just did not, he just felt totally out of his comfort zone. We're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, we have all the safety stuff. So if anything was to go wrong, we can press a button, a helicopter will be there, but it's, it's still not what a guy wants to hear, you know, like, sure. and you're going to get that because that's what we do. You know, like tar hunting, you're pushing yourself physically and mentally every single time you step out in it. And you still have to be prepared that at the end of the day, you may not come back. It is a dangerous game. You know, all it takes is one rock to come a tar to walk across the face and one rock to come down and hit you on the head. And that's lights out. Sure. Um, and, because New Zealand, people say it's not a very big country, but if you get lost in the West Coast, uh, yeah, you ain't coming back. You're you know, like, yeah, like even we had a good good trip last year where the weather was supposed to be perfect for five days, so we flew in, and then the first night it blew 150 kilometer winds oh. and tore everything to shreds, and we're set up on the hill. And it was good they had a good client, you know, and he was a he was a laugh and he's from Tasmania, so nothing really bothered him. And um so I made a cup of coffee in the morning and I had reception at that stage and so I called the helicopter pilot. I said, Oh, can you come pick us up because we're in dire straits? And he laughed at me. <laughs> so I think we're thirty nine kilometers from the closest road. Oh, and wow. we just we just because our tents were blown to shreds. Um, there was nothing left. Um, like every single pole in the tent snapped. Um, so we started walking. Uh, and then I think we got there about, you know, seven or eight hours later on the oh. closest road. So that was a long hike out. But we were prepared. You know, we had, we, I always carried the best gear. We had personal locator beacons. We had like the best sleeping bags. Everything, like, we prepared for the worst. Um, you expect the best, but prepare for the worst. And that's when people say, like, the six P's is poor preparation prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> yeah, you can't believe so, that's just absolutely perfection, that side. Yeah. So if you, if you prepare yourself and you do get in trouble, then you have a plan and, and you can go forward from that. Um, 
but if you don't have a plan that's where people can like really get hurt and die um if like if somebody who's like oh we can't walk out of here it's too far you know then they would have died that night you know like if they just sat there and waited around in the cold yeah so it really takes a takes it to a different level and that that's only happened like once i've only had it, i've had it twice in about seven years another one was on the west coast and it, we got torn to shreds too but we i set the personal locator beacon off 2 a.m in the morning and a helicopter didn't come for almost like 18 hours <laughs> well i suppose they're limited by weather or that as well you know they, they're yeah, not going to drive into you know anything you're facing right now i suppose that's right. So people get these personal locator beacons like, oh, yeah, sweet, I'm great, you know, I'm good to go, you know, like somebody just come save me. And they get in a storm and they took a day pack and a rifle, you know, and they freeze to death before, like he presses the button and he's dead before the morning's out, you know, because nobody's going to put their lives in danger to come save you. So that's where you need to prepare, like, and have the worst and emergency blankets and even carry like a spare sleeping bag and a dry bag sure. um, in case one gets wet, you know, like it's just you can always draw the line. You have to carry enough, enough stuff to be safe, but you can't take too much to be ridiculous, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then it comes down to It's probably easier, you guys, you, you know the country, so this is probably a question that's probably more for for, for us that's going over there. And, and on the last podcast, which hasn't come out yet as we record this, but um, I was talking to, you know, Macca, Casey McCallum, who's, you know, he's been around, done a lot. And I asked yep. him the question, I want to ask you the same thing. Where do you draw the line between, you know, hunting to to obviously, you know, leading towards success in steep in you know, in the big country to where it's you're just not hunting, you're purely surviving. Like what what at what point do you call that? Um I mean, it's a personal question. Um everybody else has their limits. Yeah. Um like they if I know how much I can push a client without them breaking, um, you know, and it's not very far where say <laughs> they're surviving and my surviving, you know, like I could live off a, you know, couple of bits of rice and like a, a jumper for a couple of days, you know, where they think they're going to die when they have everything they need, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, it comes down to like, we don't, I'd never push anybody into something they're not uncomfortable with. That's yeah. definitely something. That, um, and if we do, we always put it past clients, you know, are you comfortable with this? Is this exactly what you want to do? You know, like if they book a hunt, we explain, you know, like it may have a bit of rain, bit of snow, you know, we're prepared for it. Are you okay with that? Um, just different questions. Like a lot of guys, you know, may not even like the rain, you know, that if it starts raining and pouring and stuff and their gear's wet and they feel like shit and they get back to the tent, you know, and they feel like, oh, how am I going to get this dry and whatnot, you know, like that could be, in their eyes, um, life or death situation where, sure. you know, you just take clothes off and jump in the sleeping bag because it's all dry. So, yeah, like I've been in a few times where I've, I've questioned myself and my um, sanity, um, especially if, <laughs> My own personal hunting would be like, I really want to go up there. And I get there and I go, like, I really shouldn't be up here. <laughs> and you look down the hill and you're like, if I slip now, I'm going to definitely die. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it comes down to, like, it's just don't do anything stupid, really. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, I, if you don't feel comfortable with it, you know, don't do it. I guess it comes to the point, you know, 
do you push the client to a point where you know they can do it? Like if you've got to know them over a couple of days, um, is there any time that you're sort of say, come on, you know, come on, mate, or, you know, somewhere around the way of, you know, saying, you know, we can get just to here when you know they can do it, but it sometimes can be just a confidence thing that's holding them back. Oh, absolutely. You know, like I've, I've seen, I've seen that a lot, you know, like I've had guys there that have had the biggest ego and jump off the plane and they're ready for everything, you know? And, and as soon as I've hit the hill, you know, first hill and they're dead, you know, like <laughs> taking them down a few notches. Um, yeah. and then I'm no more a guide than I am a psychologist. So yeah. You know, Counselor psychologist, the works. Yeah, you might as well just put it under one umbrella for the guy. Like the guy's crying and like, Oh, it's just the waterworks, everything, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a funny question that, but I think, you know, I have had a lot of guys that have pushed and, and they've done it and they've come out and like, they're like, that was the best thing I've ever done. You know, like that is the hardest I've ever worked. That is, and they don't think it at the time, but when they're back in the truck and they're off the hill, it like switches something in their head, you know, like mm-hmm. people say that you grow most when you're at like your furthest uncomfortable. Like if you're not uncomfortable and you're not pushing yourself, then you're not like living your life to the full. So it's about a lot of guys, you know, like I'll get a message a week later and be like, bro, I want to come back, book another tar hunt next year yeah. done. Yeah. You know, like, and they're like, that's the best thing I've ever done in my whole entire life. And they just get the bug for it, you know, mm. just adrenaline junkies. And that's what they do. You know, like red stags, it's not so much adrenaline, but tar, you know, like in a rut hunt, it can be, you know, like, so that's where I think guys, you know, differentiate. They don't realize how much they do um, grow from it. Um, getting pushed. Um, like a lot of guys have pushed and they've shot real big bulls and they've been over the moon you know, we're still walking out to the truck at 1am in the morning and they're half dead, you know, but they have their sleep and that, and then they look at that bull the next day, you know, and it's just, it's just like their first born child, you know, like you can't wipe the smile off their face and they're tired and they're sore, you know, and that, and that's what, you know, that's what I enjoy is watching guys do that, you know, helping them grow and and, um, pushing them, but not, you know, I've never had a guy actually break, you know, I've never had somebody say, no, I can't do this and like just I want out. have a full full patty and opt out. You know, like I'm always there right beside them, pushing them 100% and guys love it. They just thrive off it. As a guide, what what are you looking for in the hunt as a guide? Like, I mean, it's all good for the hunter. They're, trophy, they're chasing the trophy of a lifetime, so to speak. But what are you looking for? Like, what, what makes makes the hunt for you that you go home to, to your loved ones and say, you know what, that, that was a bloody good time. Like I, I had a blast this last week. Like what, what are you looking for? Um, like when it comes down to it, like I've had a lot of guys, you know, like even older guys, you know, that I've just really enjoyed their company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've made a lot of lifelong friends through like a couple of guys there, like my mate, Jordan, Wright. He come on a trip a few years ago. Um, and then he just comes every year now and yeah. just helps me in camp, you know, like, and I've, I've guided like thousands of hunters and I could ring any one of them up now and he'd ask me, how was your day? Um, <clears throat> how's everything going at home? You know, 
did you do this or do that? And like, it's, you build a personal connection with every single hunter that comes through, um, just like your lifelong friends. And I think that for me, um, is a, is a very big factor and, and just enjoying life where I like seeing people happy, um, and, and making people happy is like my job. So for them to go home and be like, that was awesome. You know, like it just makes me feel good. Um, and then I think pushing myself personally, like if I get a guy that's really given it stick, you know, and it's like, I was like, shit, he's further than me or like whatnot, which is not very often. But if I get a guy like that, it's like, I can just almost like we're pushing off to see how far we can push each other yeah. to get the biggest trophy or whatnot, you know, like we're glass and every little nook and cranny, it always becomes like a bit of a competition on the hill, you know? So <clears throat> that there's a lot of fun too. So just friendly competition, good banter, good friendship, um, having a brew at the end of the day after like the guns are put away, you know, and just talking about life. That's just pretty much how we roll. Could I be asking, yeah, before we go shift gears, how many days of the year do you spend in the bush? Uh, probably, oh, I'm not sure. Last year I spent about 230 days in the oh, bush. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. That is absolutely yeah. crazy. I mean, is so, that, you know, obviously it's, it's like 230, but, you know, is the majority of that, you know, hunting or, or scouting or, or, or some kind of that? And most start up first week in Feb, <clears throat> go through to the end of July and do, um, and then if it's not too like snowed in, like we, a few guys, like I tell the guys, you know, like we can get out for a quick hunt. So most of July and, you know, August is filled up with hunting. Um, and then October, November, we do two full months there and even sometimes into December. So I get basically like, you know, maybe two months two and a half, three months to myself a year. That's crazy. That is absolutely wild. You said that, um, you know, you've obviously, you've done a shitload of gardening, to be honest with you, but, you know, not just New Zealand, but what is sort of your gardening experience? You know, you mentioned Colorado, um, obviously full-time, pretty much full-time guide in New Zealand, but, you know, what's some of your experiences, you know, around the world? So um, I've done, well, guiding, I've done uh, Colorado a bit, um, done a little bit in bc um just for sheep and stuff like that yeah. um i spent three months three months in colorado and um <clears throat> in the rocky mountains doing elk um i went with just a, a public land backpack outfitter so we used a lot of horses and stuff yeah cool um we're in the uh, white river national park which was the largest herd of elk do you remember um, the unit in, no i don't remember the unit okay. um but, um, I'm sure you could find it. It's just like just out of Craig, Colorado, in between Craig and Mika. Mm -hmm. And yeah, White River National Park. But there was a lot of elk there. Like we'd see 100 elk a day sometimes. But like I think we shot two 12 pointers, like six points is what they call them, like yeah, yeah. all season. 66, you know, yeah. And we. And we contended with every other man and his dog. Like mm -hmm. the hunting there was completely different. Like when I was guiding, you might have been it was really hard. Over the counter there, actually. Yeah, a lot of it, like into third rifle it was. Mm -hmm. um, but oh, like the the muzzle loader took like 10 years to draw. Um, archery, you know, like took a few years to draw. So it was still quite a quite a long wait. Gotcha. Um, most guys could come 
biannually, like every second year. Um, mm-hmm. They'll just book in a, a trip for them. And they have like either a guided camp or they had like a drop camp um, that they had of their own and they just done all the cooking themselves and just chilled. So it was quite a cool experience for that. But um, I think the biggest eye-opener for me in Colorado was um, first rifle opening morning. Um <laughs> About five minutes before legal shooting light, <laughs> I say legal because they weren't supposed to be shooting. And there was a couple of big, and we're like in this big valley, you know, in these huge sides. And there was obviously a couple of mobs of elk or herds of elk in there. And as soon as it opened up, you could tell where the herds of elk ran. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was World War Three, man. Like, <laughs> There was 150, maybe 200 shots within the first 20 minutes of first rifle. Holy shit. Like, as soon as it opened, it was like boom, boom, boom. Like I'm sitting there just drinking a coffee going, get fucked. <laughs> like I've never seen anything like this in my whole entire life. Whole other world. Like, yeah. And it's just like, it's crazy. And the way they hunt over there is completely different. Like there's a clearing, so they just sit on it. Yeah. Like there's no no spot and stalk like a lot of the guides they just dump their client off in a big clearing and said wait here all day because chances are an elk's going to run through and they're going to shoot it you know like there's no like what i'm used to is like spot and stalk and stuff yeah. like that so it was, it was really different for me to learn and like so different areas that have different hunting you know yeah and um that was yeah that was definitely an eye-opener for for me, just to see what public land hunting was really like in America, you know. I mean, especially with uh, third rifle too, because it's sort of like a migratory hunt too. So your elk have moved out of their running grounds, generally speaking, and you know that's the calling, the spotting, stalking. You know, it's all going out the window, and then once you get the rifle with your long distance shots, it's a whole nother ball game. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that was crazy. And then I got kicked in the chest by a mule and ended up in hospital for. <laughs> Cop that. Yeah, I learned the expression, kicks like a mule. Yep, first hand. Uh, yeah, like, and so the old, there's one thing I've got to say is get travel insurance because I racked up $25,000 worth of medical bills in hospital. Oh, definitely, mate. I talking about medical bills. My little one, um, I went over in 2014 for my second elk hunt in Montana and spent a couple of days with my cousin in Seattle. And my little fellow got... Um, he was 10, 11 months old at the time. We got interception, which is pretty much when your intestine goes inside itself. So we went to yep. the Seattle Children's Hospital. And look, to be honest with you, it must have meant the day because we were in probably one of the best hospitals in the world for kids. And uh, yep. yeah, long story short, that was a $35,000 bill. And uh, yeah, yep. thank God for uh, travel insurance. So there you go. Tip number one for the podcast, travel insurance, no matter where you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you went to BC and uh, and this is kind of getting close to where I'm sort of just about to head. I'm not sure if you know, but just on uh, next week I fly out to uh, to Alaska, chasing mountain goats up there. But um, you know, moving to BC, how do you sort of compare that to to New Zealand? Because to me they're very similar, but that's only from someone that hasn't done either. But you know, how did you find BC? You know, what did you what did you guide over there, and and how do you relate that back to home? Um, well, I mostly just go and done a uh, goat and um, just like stone sheep. Yeah. Um, no, it's quite hard. Like it's in New Zealand, you know. Like we think the country's big here, but it's equally big there. Um, but 
you know, like we're there for 21 days sometimes to hunt and we've got to find maybe there's like one or two sheep mm. that are legal on that range. Yeah, gotcha. And so we spend months and months looking and by the time the client gets there, it's like we already know where that sheep is and I'm going to walk you straight and shoot that sheep because yeah. I like, like I know where he is, you know. Mm-hmm. So that there was different and like we got paid like different because – you know, we didn't get paid that much. We were doing a lot of wrangling and stuff. And um, so the pay wasn't great. And you're like in the middle of absolute bum fuck nowhere. So, you know, that was interesting too. So a lot of people can't take that for months at a time. Yeah, sure. Because um, I thrive on it. Like, it's good, you know. Like, I don't have to deal with, you know. Anyway. like <laughs> trying to ring me or anything. So that was good. Um, and then, so, yeah, trying to find one animal compared to, you know, like, we have it so good in New Zealand, like our hunting so great compared to like BC. And, you know, like if we shoot and it's like a tiny little bit under curl, you know, like you might as well be back in like 1960 high school where you're going to get strapped because that warden will fucking chew you so hard if you yeah. shoot something not legal. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not, not worth your life, you know, like it's, you'll pretty much lock you up if you shoot it and it's not a full curl. So, um, it's even just like questioning yourself and, and making sure that it's like those big sheep there have got a full curl and everything's like all good to go and the client's happy. And like those hunts there are like, you know, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 hunts. Um, and it's a big responsibility not to fuck it up, to be perfectly honest. I mean, um, just explain, just explain the sheep. Cause I mean, sheep for, for most Australian hunters are, are something that they probably not have even thought of, but Talking full curl, so the idea of full curl is um, different Different areas or different states have got different rules, but uh, BC, correct me if I'm wrong here, Tom, but uh, full curl is you need a full curl in the in the actual horn. It's got to come back to a certain point at the top of the nose. Is that right? Um, yeah, it's got to be just pretty much. Yeah, so going right round. So full curl means a legal ram. They can be broomed, is that correct? Yeah, so but then you can tell from stacked age rings. Like, yes, I can't remember, but it can be like a certain age. But if he's snapped off and he's really well broomed, it's it's not like is it eight years? Yeah, eight years. Like, yeah. So you can basically get within fifty meters and count the age rings on it to make sure. But like, you can usually tell like a really old ram from like a five-year-old ram full curl because he's yeah. just heavy. Yeah, like, yeah, he's got that bases really, and that. So, yeah, as you say, like different states, like I'm not sure what it is in different areas. Like it may not be a full curl. Um, governor's tags may not be full curl, stuff like that. So, like when you go there, just the guide's going to know exactly what you can and cannot shoot. You're not going to mm. get in trouble. You know, He knows what's going on, yeah. um, knows the animal. So, yeah, no. And stone sheep is a, a special one because it's not like a doe. It's not white. Um and it doesn't stick out. Like it literally sit down on a rock and it looks like a stone. So yeah. it's it, there. It just takes so much time. You know, you're looking for like an ear flicker from like two Ks away, three Ks away sitting at the valley floor. So yeah, that there, like, the country is huge, you know. So, and the altitude too depends where you are and which area in BC you can deal with altitude sickness too. Mm. Um, so that there is one thing to consider too. This is for my own information. Um, how did you find the the sort of the mountain goats like as an animal themselves compared to the tar? Are they are they quite sort of placid? You know, when you're in around them, you know, was it you know are they are they good with wind or you know how did you find the mountain goats? 
Um, so like all species in America, because they've had uh, that hunting like platform that they've had since Theodore Roosevelt was around and he enforced it like to stop the, the like all the large native like North American game animals to like not be shot out. I find them quite docile. Mm-hmm. Um, I find like even the elk, you know, I find them everything is quite docile. they like human integration is quite a lot. Even like a sheep, like even though you're in the back country, he's not too worried about you. Yeah. Um, you always got to watch the wind and stuff because he'll get curious and, and eventually move off. But like, say if I had a deer standing here, um, like a hundred meters away and a breath of wind blows over the back of my neck, he's going to be gone a split yeah. second. It's beyond gone. Yeah. We're like a mule deer or like white tail a bit different because they're just always skittery, but like an elk, um, they'll stand there and look at you like, so you can get a good shot away, you know, like, so he'll just stand there and be like, you know, yeah, I know you're a person, but like, are you here to hurt me? He'll look at you and just meander where you're like a deer in Australia, especially in, in New Zealand. Cause we, we hunt them all the time. And if you, it's more about finding the big animals and big stags cause they're so cunning and don't get seen compared to you're there because you, you've drawn a tag and you're allowed in the area, so to speak, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's interesting, you know. You, you say, you know, the, the deer and that back here. What what intrigues me about New Zealand is is the hunting culture, um, and I, I'm sure you can see this from you know spending some time in America where hunting is so big. But what's the driving force behind the the hunting culture in New Zealand, and, and how is it shaping up? Is it continue to grow, or you know, you've been heavily involved in it? But you know, where do you see it sitting at the moment, and ha- is it improved or is it is it on the decline? Um, so it's, I can have a, a few different perspectives. Like I spent time in America and I, I've i spent a couple of years and I actually lived in Australia for a couple of years too. Like oh, so maybe, we had you for a little bit. Yeah, like I, my first wife was a, um Australian bird and she was super cool but just didn't like the hunting so obviously it's not going to work out. <laughs> um, here, like I can wear, like in New Zealand, I can wear camos down the street, nobody bats an eyelid nobody thinks it's weird um and i think that stems from because we're not such a big country and like the country's like right there you know like we have sheep grazing on the edge of town and like people wear deer fences and deer on the edge of town and if you don't personally hunt or fish at least somebody in your family does yeah okay um it is and that's i think where the culture in new zealand comes from because it's so integrated into society that everybody does it like and it's acceptable like i don't think i've had any death threats from new zealand yet like but i've had plenty from aussie yeah you know and i like i walk over there and go in the audi or something you know and i jump out and i I had camos on you know they look at you like you're ready to shoot the place up Mm. and it's just like they think it's just completely different victimizing people um and i think that's where the culture's changed like Australia's just got so big, especially like Sydney and Melbourne and stuff. Like you can go get a soy decaf fucking <laughs> avocado latte if you want and wear a man bun and it looked like a fucking lumberjack, but you can't even change a tire yeah. or cut down a tree. But you're not allowed to hunt your own meat and be sustainable because it's, you know, that's not on. Yeah. So um, in America, 
it's the same as New Zealand, I believe. Like when I was over there, um, and I was in small country towns, I couldn't tell what was it in Denver or LA. Um, yeah, it's it was, Australia. Yeah, <laughs> it would be, you know. Yeah. Um, compared to the small country town, everybody hunt because we're we're there. An influx of hunters comes in, so they buy everything. They go all to the restaurants like they loved them you know like we tipped all the pretty looking women that served us just because they had their ass out and they fucking loved us <laughs> so it's like stuff like that where in in the city you know like they'd look down on us yeah like just so it's really i think it's where you are um and people that live in right in in the city and they don't hunt or they haven't had involvement in their hunting they're very biased to a the way they think the world should be run, mm-hmm. you know, it's um they don't understand where their meat actually comes from. Like somebody just because they think their meat sits there, it's like they commit suicide so they can eat it. Right? Yeah, yeah. I've got to ask this question, and and this is because I know you'll answer it, you know, respectfully and and honestly at the same time. Um, having spent time in Australia, what's the biggest thing that we as Aussies can do for our hunting community coming from? such a rich hunting community being in New Zealand, but what's one thing that stands out to you that we could improve back here? Um, personally, I find it is very, it, it's like this in the whole hunting community, but in Australia especially is um, just the bashfulness. Mm. Um, everybody is willing to put everybody else down. Um, like, not, I'm not talking about everybody because there's a, a real good group of guys that don't. Um, and like that's who I deal with and stuff. So, but I see it quite a lot, like somebody will do something wrong and they'll get bashed for it, you know, like mm. online, a lot of young guys coming through this, seeing this and they're like, I don't want to be part of this or they seeing it and they'd be like, well, that's like, they're acting literally like schoolgirls. So I think if everybody comes together as a community and, and puts like an active like face towards hunting, like as yes, we're here, but we're proactive and we are respectful and this is what we do um go a lot further than like chaos and within the own hunting community yeah and i find that in new zealand too and just about everywhere but yeah australia happens a lot too um so that's just one thing um and maybe (laughs) i know it sounds bad but you know like you guys just need to keep pushing and pushing like for Queensland to open up its public land hunting. Yeah. Um, it's been locked away for so long. I know the guys at Shooters and Fishers and Farmers Party do a great job of legislation and stuff. And Robert Borsak, he's just like works his little ass off trying to get more hunting for you guys. And he does a really good job. So I think they need a few more members for like Queensland to even just jump on board and help them because when it comes down to it, we're just the small guy and the only people that are going to listen to us if it's a political party. Um, and I think that's the way of the future is we're going to have to start pushing politically for our own hunting rights. Yeah. And we're going to be pushed out as a minority and they're just going to spit on us like they have been doing, you know? Yeah, definitely. With the, you know, obviously seeing what we're doing, um, you know, obviously hunting is still strong in New Zealand, but you're obviously facing battles as well. But, you know, how... How do you guys keep it level-headed? I suppose you could say, you know, as a community, you know, and you're heavily involved in it. But as a as a community, how do you keep honey moving forward? Um, in New Zealand, like to be perfectly honest, I'd say Australia has more community 
hunting like as a community and there um because yeah. new zealand everybody's out for themselves yeah um, okay. it's very very hard there's no joint collective you know like we have a couple of organizations like the nzda that um and we were going to have this thing called the game animal council which got abolished by labor when they come in um so basically our game animals are free slaughter for them to cull and do whatever they want mm. uh, so yeah, New Zealand hunting communities is almost non-existent um, as a collective. So it's that there is quite quite sad. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's something that you know I didn't know. Um, as I said to you before, we got kicked off. You know, every podcast we do, you know, I certainly learn something, and and that's one that I didn't know about. You know, because the way I guess I see, you know, personally, I see hunting in New Zealand as it it it, it is collective, and it's probably credit to you to the way that you you know probably display yourselves in, you know, on social media and, and you know, to the rest of the world. Um, it doesn't come across that way um, at all, really. So, you know, that, that does surprise me. Yeah. Like I try to build up like, you know, the little tiny things I can do, like start a tar and chamois hunting page on Facebook to bring everybody to get this so they can see the issues that are going on, who's shooting good animals, and I make sure I always jump on there. And if it's a young guy that shot a nice ball, I'll be like, congratulations, man. That's a real good effort. Like, yeah. and, and it just, I don't see it happening very often. You know, like there's nobody there that's willing to teach people um, just the way that hunting is. Everybody's worried about their own spots, you know? So yeah. I suppose that's a, you know, I mean, I've had feedback here, you know, from, from different guys chatting as well, because obviously New Zealand's got so popular with the Aussie guys getting over there and, you know, they're, probably feel a little bit threatened on the public land sort of thing as far as numbers go but at the end of the day i mean there's not enough people our, our, our sport's so small you know it's not going to get a take going to get taken over but you know what would you say to someone that you know is holding back information or is just not willing to help someone you know what what do you have to say to them um i'd personally say like just loosen up you know like i I've done a lot of things for guys that I don't expect anything in return. You know, yeah. like guys ask me, oh, I really want to come over for a good hunt. I can't afford a hunt, you know, like, or guys that are already here, you know, give me a tip. And I'm always the first person, you know, I haven't been to this spot for a couple of years, mm. you know, but it's worth a look, you know, like all my mates, you know, they always come to me because I give them the good fucking hunting spots. But <laughs> anybody that's not willing to make a community is like, I don't think they understand, like, if we help a young guy coming through, then he's going to teach all his mates, and his mates going to teach his mates, and then we're going to be stronger as a collective. But if we hold back and don't help the younger generation coming through, if we just, like, my old man, it's, it's a prime example, you know, like, I literally have to draw blood from a stone to ask about a spot that he may have shot or seen good stags. Yeah. Like, and this is my own goddamn father. Yeah so it's even just like little tiny things because he's been taught his whole life not to tell anybody where he goes hunting and, and keep your spots your, your own spots you know but um like the deer are always going to be there the tar are always going to be there chamois are always going to be there and so just giving somebody a helping hand or be like i went to the spot i didn't see much but it's worth a look yeah you know not doesn't have to be your best spot i'm not saying everybody give out the best spot but just you know, like if I could say to the hunters in New Zealand, just loosen up and, you know, just help each other and we'll get so much further. 
I think it goes and we're, you know, right now we've got a platform that, you know, we can definitely reach a lot of people. I think in the recipient of that information needs to be respected. Um, and I think that's where a lot of this, you know, generational thing is you don't tell anybody is because the person that's received that information is, let's be honest, it's just, you know, fuck someone over by the way of abusing that information. And yeah. I think, so I, go, I think it goes both ways. If someone's willing to share it, you know, we need to be thankful for that and go, you know, that's a big thing for someone to share that info and respect it, mm. not tell your buddy, use it for your own, you know, benefit. And then, you know, probably just a thank you or, you know, some appreciation for that info. Yeah, that's right. And like the guys that I have given information for, they're exactly like that, you know, and the guys that have, you know, like I've given them a spot and they've taken all their mates back there and there's nothing left. Well, obviously, you know, I just take them aside, be like, mate, you know, you overstepped the boundary, yeah. you know, you're not going to get far to do that. Just pull your fucking head in. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, if you pull them up on it, you know, if you just let it slide, then it, you're going to get nowhere. But it's best just to tell guys, you know, this is how, you know, you're supposed to do it. Young guys are always going to make mistakes. You know, we made mistakes. We can't expect guys to come through and, and not make mistakes. So it's like we're still going to be – they need to be respectful. We need to be lenient. Um, so, yeah, as you say, definitely works both ways. Sam, so we're going down the rabbit hole of political shit, as we always seem to do. But uh, it's always a good time to get different opinions on this. But this is one one that is a very touchy subject, and, and, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, but I don't really care – how someone takes an animal as long as they, you know, tell the story in, in the way that it should be told. But tell me like high fence is straightforward, but you know, we're seeing a lot of stuff come through that it's classed as true free range. You look at the size of the head and you go, that's a load of bullshit. That is no way that is free range. Can you yeah. separate like without, you know, I don't want you to throw anyone in the, in the, in the hole or anything like that, but you know, is there is there times where stuff's grown, let go years ago to, to then breed or, you know, how does it all work? Like I've seen your stuff and you look at that, I think you've even made a comment on your post years ago about, you know, that it's good to see a good free range head. It's very yeah. easy to see, but sort of tell us, give us your opinion of it and sort of break that down a bit for us. Um, So when guys would say they shot this big free range stag, you know, um, like if we shoot a big stag and it's looking funky and it's got genetically bred in it, I'll be like, yeah, we shot a big escapee. Um, yeah. I'll tell it for what it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the problem is like, yeah, as you say, like, and I see it all the time and I'm not going to put anybody in the deep end, but like even me and another couple of outfitters, you know, you'll see me a photo and we'll have a giggle, you know, like <laughs> look at the big free range, like, and they'll post it blatantly on Facebook, you know, yeah. and I think the biggest thing, and and you could see it just as well as I can, is I've I've had like I know what genetic stags look like. I've seen them. Um, that like I I had to score them off the hoof to say how much it is for somebody to shoot them. So I can tell those suckers down from like a point. Um, is the genetically bred ones are always going to be twice as heavy as a free range stag? Okay. Is they'll have the beam. So anybody that sees oh, yeah, I shot this big free-range stag. Like, they can make up their own mind as far as I'm concerned. So if you have a stag that there, as you can get your hand around it, like just, then that's going to be a free-range stag. But if you can not put both your hands around it and cup that stag, then it's going to be a genetically bred stag. Mm -hmm. um, because our free-range stags have never had that weight. Um, 
And then, so another telltale sign is the first three tines at the bottom. So you'd know what a free-range stag looks like, like a beautiful royal 12-pointer that mostly relatively even. Everything is symmetrical. Everything's nice. On a high fence stag, nine times out of ten, it's going to have a kicker. It's going to have a basal snag. One point is going to point down. Mm-hmm. Both of them are going to point down. One's going to point up. And then it's going to have crazy throwbacks and tines and stuff. And realistically, I don't think I've seen a genuine free-range stag bigger than 18 points yep. shot in the wild in this century. Yeah. You know, so it's um it's besides the point. So... And I don't mind guys saying, yeah, we shot this big stag and the like and it's an escapee, like congratulations. Mm. It may have escaped ten years ago and it's got no air tech hold. I was just about to say it. that. I was look, I'm not taking away the hunting, like the effort that's gone into it. Like it's the the actual animal itself is where my fascination comes from. And knowing right. what you know, knowing what is, you know, the the where it sort of sits. Uh, amongst you guys over there, as you know, as far as what the animal's doing and where they're from and what they're, you know, how they come about. Like, I'm not definitely don't want anybody to think that I'm taking away from the hunting ability of that stag. As made a wild stag, a wild stag, and they're tricks to try and track down. So, but yeah. it is, you know, that's awesome information. Um, obviously, there's an like, opportunity to have that mix. Like, you, you've different areas will have both. Yeah. So very, very seldom you'll see. Um, like you can't get half and halves. So okay. our wild, our wild hinds and wild stags will never be that of a genetic stag because the stag only holds half of the genetics put into like. So you have to have a pedigree hind and a pedigree stag to make a decent stag. It's going to go over three fifty. Ah, right. Okay. So, so it's all bloodlines, all pedigree bloodlines and stuff like that. So that there is even just a like a there you go for yourself, you know, not many people know that. No. So you can't buy a high fence stag and chuck it out on your wild block and expect it to just breed. Yeah. Because you're still going to have stags that look exactly the same in five years' time off that stag because it's going to be that far down the line that it's not going to matter. Ah, gotcha. A little bit. So to make those really big stags, like anything going like that four, five, six hundred, even 700 inches of antler nowadays is you need bloodline, like line breeding. That's how it's done. How many times has that line crossed? Um, I'm not too sure. It really comes down to a lot of guys have moral compasses um, and some people don't. So it really comes down to themselves. Like I've seen a few stags this year. I'd be like, yeah, that's questionable. I'm not going to say anything. It's just personal preference, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, as you said, like, is that, is that, um, you know, we obviously talk about Wapiti and that, um, you know, is, is that kind of say Wapiti and then obviously the red stags, do they kind of surround that, that region? Like they're obviously cross, you know, we talk about hybrids and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's obviously hard as a hunter. You're just going to shoot it. You're not going to question whether it's a hybrid or not, but, uh, what way of the line that is. Um, you know, how far do, do the Wapiti kind of have spread? You, you mentioned that was sort of a roost, you know, roostville sort of background. Um, you know, how far do the red stags sort of venture to that area or do they have their sort of fringe country or how does that sort of work? So in the Wapiti blocks there, like the Field and Wapiti Foundation, they've been taking a different approach. So you can never, ever 
like because there was so many reds there when they dropped like everything grew up in the same so the very first elk that got shot like the like early 1900s to like 1950s was the heyday like we shot like up to 450 class elk like we had the the best elk in the world mm. that was in new zealand and then the boys all went off to war um and then the red numbers because the red stag or the red hinds have a higher fawning rate than an elk cow okay so because it's same genetic subspecies they can interbreed so yeah. the hybridization is an elk bull will breed over an like a red cow a red hind and it will fawn where the elk bull if it was to like i think it's only 80 percent if it was to mate over a elk so where oh. the red like 99 percent so that in itself was a problem because so many more red deer were coming out of the area than the wapiti. So what they've done is now they're culling the wapiti, like, no, not culling the wapiti, culling the reds and the hybrids that have more red tendencies than, like, elk tendencies. So with an elk, um, a lot of guys will go there and they'll be like, oh, you know, they'll say, you want to shoot something that's 45 inches. If you don't shoot something that's 45 inches, we want you to leave it. But guys will get there and they'll see a red stag that's like 14 points, you know, and maybe yeah. 32. And the biggest way to tell the difference is, and you can tell it from an elk compared to a red stag, is an elk will have a longer nose and a narrow face. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a, like more of a white rump compared to like a, um, like a brackish sort of color. Gotcha. And their body, so their legs are longer than a red stag so and they're more narrow built so a red stag is quite a heavy built critter where an elk is quite tall he's quite lanky but he's still got a big deep throat like like so and it's just a color so there's a few different things that you can tell the difference between a red stag and an elk um it just comes down to yeah like you just need to learn and before every hunter goes into the wapiti block you have to do a seminar where they take you through and teach you what to shoot what not to shoot what they're trying yeah. to achieve in the foundation blocks so then if you go into it and you're not going to shoot a two-year-old bull like that's 12 points or a three-year-old bull that's 12 points that may go 350 you know in six years time yeah. so that, that's what we're trying to achieve and that's what they've been trying to achieve for the past 10 years and the way it's gone now, like they shot some beautiful elk there this year and they're doing a great job. So that there is just great to see because they've changed everything that we thought about elk hunting and we thought they were a lost cause. They've changed it and now we've got seeing some really good elk and they're doing a really good job. I'm glad you said that because I was actually going to, that was one of my next questions was, you know, how, how do you see, you know, from, from the management that's been happening over the last years, um, I mean, it's great to see it, it, it turn to a positive. You know, how, how true do you think the, the elk herb will come back? I mean, is it, is it completely gone forever or do you think, you know, it's here to, here to stay, so to speak, and, and will only get better? Um, well, the way they're going about it is they're only going to get better. So they're culling out the red. So the more elk tendencies are breeding over more elk cow tendencies, 
reds. So eventually, you'll never get rid of the reds. You'll always have that little bit of crown up on top of the, the big bull antlers. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they shoot in there. That's just a given. But they're still going to have whale's tails. They're still going to sit back. They're still going to bugle more than they are going to roar. So that there is just an achievement in itself compared to maybe 25 years ago, you went in there and you could barely hear like a bugle, you know, yeah. it was mostly all roaring. So the way they've gone about it, yeah, it's just culling out the red type animals. Um, and then just, you know, like they'll never, ever, ever be able to get a hundred percent pure yes, elk. Yeah. 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 Come back for blood once again. Yeah. How much, um, how much time have you spent in the fjordlands? Um, I've spent a little bit of time, um, mostly sitting in a tent as <laughs> 95% of the men brave enough to take on Fiordland do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just copious amounts of sandfly repellent. I've seen some really good upcoming bulls. Um, I personally haven't shot a big one just because like, I'm not going to go there and just shoot any old thing. Um, I have a the expectation in my head, what I would shoot and what I wouldn't shoot. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> where like I seen there and I seen like 42 inch whoppity bulls that I could have pulled the trigger on just to be like, no, that's going to be better next year. I'm not convinced that's a 10 year old bull. Yeah. Like like four or five year old bulls and they don't hit their prime until a little bit later. So like that seven to eight years old is really getting into the prime for bull elk and you don't want to shoot it. Like after 10, it's going to go down. So I was like, I want to shoot the oldest of old, the biggest of big, and I, I haven't ended up shooting one, but I've, I've spent a lot of time there and I've enjoyed it. And yeah, like it's just another thing on the bucket list for me to do, which seems hard because I'm always fucking guiding. <laughs> That's the brutal thing uh, about that uh, the outfitting guiding business. Your your own hunting career goes out the freaking window. But anyway, that's uh, that's another story. But talking about you know bucket list, you know what is on your bucket list? I mean, you've you've done so much. I mean. Where do you go next? You know, as far as the hunting, like not so much the guiding, but just your personal hunting career. You know, what um, what does that look like to you? Uh, I shot pretty. I shot every deer species in Australia bar a chittle. Mm-hmm. So, I um yeah, chittles on my bucket list when I get back there. Like they have just given me hell. Like <laughs> people are like oh, there's so many chittles. They're so fantastic. They're not, it's not a bad hunt. Easy to shoot. Like I went up to Greg's place up and like. Yep. North Queensland, and I seen like this big, dirty chittle, like it was 11 points, and I'm sure it had a bit of rooster in it. It had a drop tine. This thing was like 32 inches long, <laughs> and I put three, I put three shots at it, and I just c- could not connect. Like it was just going to try get under like one of those sheep fences. Yep. And hesitated, and I shot like right when it hesitated to go under, and I was like, I'm going to get it as it hits the bottom of the fence, <laughs> and it just and it ran, and I shot it at the run, and then I done the same fucking thing again when it went down <laughs> to the fence, and I I pretty much that's the lowest I've ever felt like yeah you know, like hide the razor blades, Greg, because I was just a beast, man. <laughs> like it's the biggest chitter I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And I could just have cried, you know. So that there for me is like, I know chittle, a lot of guys just shoot from the backyard or the back of the truck, but like, yeah. that's the only thing. It's such a pretty deer. Like, I'd they're love beautiful. to get one. Absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And so their eating quality. Have you eaten one yet? Yeah, I've eaten them. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, um, 
They are unbelievable. Have you, um, you know, is any of the, I guess the, the Kazakhstans, the, you know, Turkestans and all those bloody stands, but, um, you know, any of that really exotic sort of stuff, you know, the, you know, especially obviously because of your background with Tar and Shami and those kind of things, but, you know, any of those sort of, you know, big hunters they ever been on your, on your bucket list? Yeah, it's just something you've got to get, like, through. Obviously, either do you buy a house or just start a tar, tour hunting career, you know? Yeah, tour hunting career. <laughs> so you start, <laughs> you know, go shoot a Marco Polo and put a deposit down on the oh, house. Oh, wow. So it's really, like, I'm getting it to the point where I really need to buy a house. Everybody's hounding me about a house. Um, like, because I, I had an ex-wife and like it all went pear-shaped there and Aussies, like I lost most of my house. So I just gave it to her and fled back to New Zealand. Um, <laughs> and then yeah, I've just been focusing on just hunting like my normal stuff and just saving up enough money. And like I done South Africa a few years ago. That was a bit of a blast. Shot heaps of stuff I really shouldn't have, but it was fun. And it got <laughs> short. Um, and then, um, yeah, so... I'd love to go and do it. Like I see a lot of stuff from like Jim Shockey, the hunts he does. And um, mm. like my Facebook's always full of like really awesome Ibex and stuff. So I think, yeah, like I really want a really big Ibex, one of those big ones that kill back. I oh, think. Yeah. Oh. They're unreal. And, you know, and I still see Ben, like Soleri's posts and they're just like, it's just like, oh, you're a dick every time. Like every week he's away hunting and I'm just like, <laughs> I'm away working, but I'm still hunting. It's like, oh, yeah, my life's still good, you know, but I wish I was. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. hilarious. He's the man. He's the man. Yeah, he's, a, he's a legend, man. But, well, uh, I, I mean, someone that spends as much time in the bush as you are, I've, I've got to ask you, and, and this will probably go hand in hand, these, these couple of questions, but I've got to talk to you about gear because – I'm going to be honest and say a lot of the gear that's designed, spoken about, I can't talk for all of it because um, there's some stuff out there that is pretty awesome for the stuff that you do. But, you know, what what's your sort of um, base kind of kit, you know, without getting too technical, but, you know, what are you looking for in your gear? I mean, especially boots and packs have seemed to be always spoken about. But, um, you know, if someone's looking to come over and do a tar hunt, you know, it's pretty easily to waste some money. And weather is a big thing. I know you're you're big on weather because it can be so dangerous, you know, if it goes goes to shit. But talk us through your gear list and and, and where what you sort of want to see someone you know have if if you're not supplying it, what they what you want to see them have in their pack, um, and stuff that maybe is overdone that you know is just a waste of time. Yeah. So basically, to, to keep warm, it's all about layering system. Yeah. Um, like when a guy comes over, I expect him to have um, a good pair of European boots. Um, I want to see two sets of thermals, <clears throat> um, uh, no cotton whatsoever, because cotton, once it's wet, it'll suck the moisture and it'll cool you down really quick because mm-hmm. um, the wind just wicks it and it cuts right through you. So either merino, a good synthetic, um, like thermal. At the moment, I just bought the like a couple of months ago when it really got cold, I bought the Under Armour, like it's called Baseline 3. Yep. It's just like the best thermal they had. And I think I paid like 240 bucks for a pair of thermals, which is outrageous. Yeah, but it's but nothing it's, death today. Yeah, but it's the best thermals I've ever had, you know, yeah. like 
So it's really about just making sure, like I use a lot of Stony Creek stuff and I do a lot of work with those boys. Yep. Um, so, but it's it's all the same, you know, like the gear, most of the stuff nowadays is, is pretty well made, you know, like it's all, a lot of it's all made in China. It's still going to have the same quality. It doesn't matter if it's Kuyu or Ridgeline or Sitka or Stony Creek or um, anything, you know. It's really what works for you when it comes down to what brand you want because I can't speak. <clears throat> I've had guys wear Ridgeline and they've been just as warm as I have. Yep. But it's all coming down to how you manage that clothing. So if you put your thermals on and then you put like a micro fleece uh, just T-shirt on and then like a polar fleece and then you may have a puffer jacket and a raincoat mm -hmm. is what you'll take to like you it's always easier for guys to take gear off once they get warm rather than not have it and they need it. Yeah. So I'm always big on guys making sure they bring more warm clothes than they need. And especially on the hill, if we're away from camp and they don't have any extra clothes and they're like, Oh yeah, I'm warm already. I'd be like, bro, throw in the jacket because it's like 20 degrees now. But when that wind chill picks up and that sun goes behind the hill, yeah, maybe negative three or four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, and then, um, so that comes down to, I, I swear by the puffer jackets, I'm really, like I've just started using them in the past 24 months. I'm mm -hmm. really enjoying them. Um, a lot of the time I don't even take my jacket on the hill, like if we're going to have a good spout of weather because they're, they're pretty much waterproof as it is. When it gets wet, it's still down, it's still warm. Yeah. Um, and then... I'm finding that's good just for sitting there. You want a glass. Um, I don't like overtrier pants or anything like that. I find it too restrictive. I just like a nice fleece sort of pants. And then if it's cold, I'll put thermals underneath. Okay. And I find that good. they'll still get wet, but you're still warm. You're still moving. You're not like sloshing like shh, shh. Yeah, yeah. Because that there is irritating, especially when you have like full rain gear and somebody's all kitted up. And they're like trying to walk down the hill like the Michelin man and they just <laughs> slip over and end up wrapping them like from arsehole to tail anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter with that. Um, and then if you're going to come by like all our tents and stuff. So at the moment I'm using um, Mont Epox four season tents. Okay. Um, and I've used one planet like and I've used MSR hubba hubbers and stuff like that. And like the only thing is I can say, don't buy an MSR because if you want to die, you can buy an MSR, but I'm not dying. So I'm not buying an MSR. Good feedback. Um, I had this conversation I've, with a buddy the other day. So I appreciate that. I've treated $5,000 with the MSR gear and I was guaranteed every time it's going to work. And it's just shit yep. for like 600 bucks where you could just get a, a, a four season tent, like a one planet Nissan, um, we called it the New Zealand Bomb Shelter, and it's like an Australian-made company. Like, I don't think the actual tent's made in Australia, but it's UBI neoprene. It's a really good tent. Um, you may need to replace it any every 24 months or something like that because a lot of guys don't understand this. When you buy a tent and you use it a few times, everything does start to wear. Yeah. Like. I change tents every 24 months because then you start putting lives in danger because the gear has been used so much. It's been wet, worn. Um, so if a guy buys a tent, say, yeah, i got a sweet tent, you know, everything's good to go, but you bought that five years ago and you pulled it out and it's like the stitching starting to rot and you're in the back country in New Zealand and you get a storm, you know, yeah, like 
you're in, you could be up shit creek. So it's mm. all about making sure your gear is tested, trued, um, make sure that you positively have a four-season tent. Like the MSR is only a three-season tent. Yep. You can get in a lot of trouble. Make sure you get a four-season tent. Um, it comes down to a lot of guys, they won't realize is – when you're camping and you're sleeping on the ground, you need a good bed roll because when your body's cold, it will suck the energy out of you and you, you wake up feeling tired compared to if you had, say, it's a thermarest or something where like that. Another trick is to put your clothes on top of your thermarest between you and your thermarest mm-hmm. because that's another insulated layer. So you'll lose heat 10 times quicker from having – the ground suck the energy yeah. and the cold out of you compared to the air above. So the more feeling. you, so the more you can have below you, the better. So the higher you are off the ground, the more insulation you have off the ground. The better your night's sleep, the more you're going to wake up energized and not cold because your body's burning energy to stay warm. Um, and then sleeping bags, anything that's a four season rated, negative five degrees is usually what I tell the guys. How are you with um, down and synthetic bags? Um. Personally, I always use down. I've never really been a huge fan of synthetic. Yeah, it's lightweight. Um, I use a Black Stag 1000. There's a Stony Creek Black Stag 1000, and mm-hmm. like that thing, uh, you could rasp, roast marshmallows lying in it, like <laughs> on a hot <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that there, like, I've really been liking that. Um, I also had a uh, One Planet Winterlight before that, and that was a nice bag too. Um, so I can't speak for personal, like, experience in synthetic because i've tried to stay away from it just because i'm a old-fashioned just like stuff that's tried and true works well um and I, I i take a heavy duty bag like a lot of guys will carry a summer bag for like summer and a winter bag for winter where i'll just carry the heavy bag yep. all year round it can still get like negative five degrees in the middle of summer in snow yeah so yeah so just recapping um, on that where before I know because I know you got more to go. Um, so we're we're layering system for the clothing layering system. You know, two pairs of thermals. Um, you like just a, a loose sort of, you know, outer woolen pant. Um, you know, you, you don't like restriction. I noticed a lot of guys they'll use a gaiters um, thermals and then a pair of shorts. Um, I've yeah. seen that quite seen seen of use. What's your thoughts on that? Um, like it's all well and good, um, especially on a hot summer's day, but then when it cools down at night, obviously your legs get cold. It sucks. So, um, like when tar hunting, I'll make sure guys don't bring stubbies and like a lot of guys will wear that, like, especially if they're a guide, um, just for freedom, they wear thermals, Mm -hmm. gaiters and shorts. Um, and just cause they get more freedom walking uphill, you feel quite like you can take your thermals off, you know, your bulls breathe in the air, you're sweating your cunt out walking up a hill, so it's all good. Um, and then you just put your thermals back on. So it's really personal preference. I only wear pants just because, um, like, when I fall over, I don't get spiked in the ass by gotcha. Spaniard grass. Um, gators are good for the snow, so um, I definitely recommend that. West Coast bush gators are good, so you don't get leaves and stuff falling down inside your boots. Yeah. Um Water like river crossings and stuff, gators are good, so yeah, no, I recommend that too, yeah, definitely. And uh, and obviously, you know, moving to the upper upper half, you know, same thing, your layers again, so your, your thermals, you know, as you said, a couple of sort of the fleece tops, you know, maybe two different weights, 
um, and the down for, for, for obviously sitting still. Um, I've just got yep. to make note, and I've been wanting to, to even to post this, but guys, please, with down, it's not to hike in. I've seen some people hiking in down jackets. It will cook you. They don't breathe. They're to sit in glass or sit and just want to be warm. Don't try and hike in them. Um, it's something that I've noticed a lot of people aren't, um, some of the manufacturers aren't pushing. Um, you know, it is something just to sit in, not to try and hike in. So if you're complaining about how hot it is when you hike, that's why. Um, sorry, I just had to go on a little rant there, but I've just been cracking up a few things I've been saying on the, on uh, on social media. But it's even best like a, a lot of companies now bringing out like a wind cutter jacket so just put your down it'll fit like the stony creek ones they have a pocket where it fits inside itself it's just half the size of like a rugby ball it just yeah. fits in the bottom of your pack on. and then just pull that out and put it on top of a wind jacket yeah, so you can buy these full breathable but they have an outer layer it still wicks the moisture away from your skin so you don't sweat too much inside it and it's breathable mm-hmm. but cuts the wind. Yeah. Um, so obviously another good idea and chance um, to try something new. I mean, you know, you, you obviously be careful. And this is why I wanted to ask yourself, you know, purely from, you know, someone that's tried and tested a lot of it, um, you know, because a lot of, I think a lot of personal preference you know, it does get a little bit involved when we're talking gear, but, you know, I sort of wanted to sort of get the baseline, um, you know, and I appreciate you saying that, you know, it doesn't really matter what what sort of brand it's got on or what label, but as long as it's got the same sort of characteristics of, um, you know, merinos and things. But how do you go with, you know, with packs? Um, you know, it's obviously a quite a debated topic. Um, you know, we're obviously the podcast is sponsored by EXO. You know, they're proven, but they are. You know, they're American based. A lot of it's not sort of to the extremities of what you're doing. Um, you know, how, what sort of pack do you wear? Um, you know, is it, it's, a, it's obviously going to be a frame pack that supports weight, but you know, what's your preference there? So, my personal pack I've had for 15 years. It's a New Zealand made Mac Pack Ravine, which was a mountaineering pack. Yeah, Mac Pack. Um, yeah. So, there was a New Zealand made pack like, I don't know, 20 years ago. The thing still holds up, but I get the uh, harness replaced every two or three years after I blow it out. Yeah, sure. Um, and I've been looking into a, another type of pack. Like, I, I looked into the paddling packs. Yeah. Um, and just like where it's got the detachable. Because, like, I carry a large pack where I don't need to all the time. I just want something that can carry my binos, my spotting scope, a couple of bottles of water, a first aid kit, PLB, and the rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I looked into them, and I, I've been meaning to have a look at them a bit closer. But as you say, you know, like, exo packs, I think, doesn't um, Pat Tidings bring those in? He does, yeah. Pat brings them in to Aussie. And, um, you know, he's, he's proven and tested them. He's... he's pretty wrapped with them. I know I've been, you know, super, super impressed with my eyes coming to Alaska with me. So, um, yep. you know, they, they've, yeah, definitely stood the, stood the test and a few other guys been using them as well. Yeah. Cause like a few of my mates looking into them too. And another couple of guides were asking questions and I put them on to Pat. So, um, stuff like that, you know, a lot of American made brands are good. Like you see the Exos as a classic example, what you were talking about. Um, then you've got like Stone Glacier, Mm-hmm. Um, then the Padlands bring out a new carbon fiber pack that I think they're 
testing at the moment. Maybe okay. it's just a prototype coming out. I'm not sure. You'd have to ask those guys. But um, and then um, you got like the just basic Hunter's Element, Stony Creek, and stuff like that. Which mm. I, if you're gonna do hardcore stuff, I wouldn't recommend buying a Chinese pack such as Ridgeline, Hunter's Element, or maybe even Stony Creek if it can't take it. Like you really need a pack that has got a hundred percent pack frame internal built or mm. external whatever you're totally into or you'll kill your back the yeah. thing will blow up um water will get in so it just comes down to it's another thing that you, you can expect to spend seven or eight hundred dollars on to get a good pack it's going to last you but there's it, like buy once cry once you know like yeah, you're going to exactly buy it right. you're going to have it for the next seven or eight years so um i see like uh jared matthews is using the stone glacier and paddling pack so and and he does a lot of hard hunting too so um that there's just a another thing to go on it's not always branded but like when you are buying an expensive pack make sure you do do your research and just little tiny things you know see what works best for you um because like I'm quite, I'm like six to 100 kilos, so I'm a big lad. Like, and that Mac packs like the largest frames. Mm -hmm. So, it really depends what you like, you really want in a, in a pack, and if it's going to fit you, and make sure you get the right size pack for your frame too, um, like shoulder width and stuff. So, it doesn't sit funny um, because extra weight can put like pressure points on your back that eventually over time, like my back's just ruined from like snowboarding accidents. Um, so like, I really need my pack to be good. And, um, and this, this is just the Mac pack I use. Well, I think it comes right back to, you know, early, you know, a little bit earlier in the uh, conversation where it comes to the enjoyment of the hunt and a lot of these gear things can, it can actually help with that. You know, you're talking about the sleeping bag with the sleeping pad, you know, having some sort of an extra layer. So you're not getting freezing cold, you know, boots are a big one, you know, having a pair of boots, um, you know, a, a pack that's fitted properly, it's comfortable, carry a weight, all these kind of things add up, you know, into to, to enjoying that hunt and leaving, you know, kind of some of the tough parts of the hunt, you know, actually in the pursuit of the actual animal and not worrying about your gear. Well, correct. So as far as I'm concerned, like your gear may break or it may make your hunt. Mm. If you are warm, you have everything you need, you can sit there, you can glass longer, your concentration level is stronger, you focus for longer. If you have every possible scenario in your favour, the better you'll do. Just like the six Ps I said before. Yeah. Is prepared and and you're ready for it. Um your tro if you're just a meat hunter or a trophy hunter, it doesn't matter. If you still want to take meat home at the end of the day, you want to be able to sit there till last light and not bail because you're too cold and can't you feel your fingers, mm. for example. So um, just make sure, yeah, like that may, like guys that are out there just that half an hour longer because they can take it because they got the good gear, um, they may be the ones that shoot that 30-inch stag. Like yeah. it's really just, just do it, you know, like it's – it's only money, you know, we're all going to take it to the grave of us. So like, well, I think most the biggest, of my thing, money... biggest thing with the money is too, is the difference between a lot of this stuff is, I know it sounds, you know, maybe a little bit arrogant, but you know, there's only a few hundred bucks between the lower end of the pack and the higher end of the packs or, you yeah, know, or whatever gear it may be. I just sort of think, look, if you, you know, if you just save, 
save that extra few weeks or don't drink piss this weekend or, or whatever it may be. Um, and as you said, you know, buy it once. It's going to do you forever. Like it, it really, like you just said, you know, you, bought, you got your Mac pack and, you know, 15 years or 15 years down the track, you, you know, you're still cracking with it. And that would have been a, a pack of its time, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was revolutionary back then. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, you know, way above, it was probably a shitload of money at the time when you bought it and thinking, what the hell am I doing? Yeah, that's right. Good. <laughs> well, mate. You, live, you learn, don't you, you know? Well, we try to. We try to. <laughs> I don't know if it happens all the time or happens quickly, but, but um, mate, look. I can't I can't say thank you enough for, for the information you provided today. Um, you know how to any of the listeners is interested in you know either coming for a hunt with you or, or maybe in asking you a few questions in regards to gear or you know weather New Zealand in general. You know where's the best place to find you? Um, you can look us up on Facebook. Uh, just a personal uh, profile is Tom Jones, or you can look us up at Tom Jones Trophy Hunting um, Facebook page. Um, or if you want to flick us an email. Uh, just have a look at maindivideoutfitters.com and you can see all the contact details and stuff through there. So, yeah, That's just... Awesome, mate. And what's your, uh, what's your Instagram handle? Uh, I think it's Tom Jones Trophy Hunting too. Or it could be Tim Jones Trophy Hunting. you got too many bloody... There you go, Tom Jones NZ Hunting. Yeah. got it there. And if you want to see some awesome photos, get onto that. Uh, for those guys that have got Instagram, but uh, you can certainly see what Tom gets up to. And um, mate, once again, thank you for everything. I appreciate your uh, your open and, and honest, uh, you know, opinions and feedback on on some of the questions. I know some of them get a little bit tricky to answer, but um, mate, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, so no problem at all, uh, Craig. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and uh, I look forward to hearing the podcast in the future. Definitely, mate, and I think uh, I think we've got plenty more room there to uh, probably knuckle down on each species as well. So we uh, we might do a red deer one, getting closer to that season, and then uh, maybe do a tar one slightly before uh, before May hits. Absolutely, I'd love to teach some boys about chasing some roaring reds. So that'll be an absolute pleasure too, mate. Uh, look out, I'm coming you're coming for you. Say come February. So anyway, mate, thanks again, and uh, I'll let you go to bed because it's probably about midnight now. Yeah, sure is. Thanks, Craig. Have a good one, eh? We'll talk to you soon, eh? Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was proudly brought to you by Hoyt Bowhunting. I recently had the pleasure of taking a tour of the Hoyt factory in Salt Lake City in Utah. It's no wonder why so many bowhunters around the world put their trust in a Hoyt. Seeing the process, start to finish, under one roof, going through over 50 inspection stations throughout the build process, there is no doubt they are the most reliable and suitable bow on the market. Get serious get Hoyt. That's all for me this week. Good luck in the hills and I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of the Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.